how can you say there's just one true religion? I mean, how narrow-minded and exclusive do you have to be to claim that your religion is somehow superior or better than all other ones? exclaimed Johnny. I don't believe it's uh, just narrow-minded. I believe it's dangerous, responded Sally. And I believe that if Christians go on believing and exclaiming that their religion is somehow superior to all other religions, it will cause irreparable harm. Well, hey, Gateway, good morning to you. I hope you are doing well. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John chapter 4. If you don't know where that is, there's always a handy-dandy table of contents at the beginning of your Bible, or you can go all the way to the very back of your Bible and start slowly turning to the left, don't go too far, and then you will find 1 John chapter 4. And when you find that, put a tab there and also turn to the left a little bit more and find the book of James, James chapter 3. And while you're looking for those two passages, we are in a new series where every single week we are going to tackle a topic that has been presented to us by the youth of this church, by Summit Youth. We reached out to all the young people of this church and we asked them, what are the most difficult questions that you grapple with that cause you to doubt, that cause you to wonder, or questions that you have received from your unchurched or unbelieving friends in regards to the Christian faith. And I think they have provided an incredible list for us to sink our teeth into. And uh, you might recall two weeks ago, we started off with what is perhaps the most difficult question of them all, and that being the question of Easter, the question of the resurrection. Did it really happen? And if so, how can we know? And ultimately, that is the most foundational, most important question that we can ask ourselves. And moving forward, we have a whole list of questions that I think are going to be a whole lot of fun for us to seek to make sense of. And ultimately, this is an apologetics series. If you don't know what that word is, let me give you a definition of it. Uh, Apologetics is simply this, giving reasons in defense of the truth and the importance of the Christian faith. That Greek word apologia literally means to give a defense. So you can have this picture in your mind of a courtroom scene in which a defense attorney tries to give a defense of the truth. And in the same way, Scripture communicates to us that as Christians, it is our responsibility to give a defense as well. And so on the front end, I want to share with you that if you are a Christian, if you have stepped over that line to follow Jesus, and you have resolved wholeheartedly to follow him in obedience and love, that means you are an apologist. It's not the exclusive domain of preachers and teachers and pastors, but if you are a Christian, then it is your responsibility to give a defense of the faith. It's your responsibility to lay claim to the truths that are foundational to our lives according to Scripture. The Apostle Peter and Paul and James all highlight this reality. Let me share a couple of passages of Scripture that point to this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says this, Preach the word... Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Or what about this one? First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So they're saying that we need to be prepared to give a defense of the gospel. Be prepared to share our faith. But not only that, it also highlights 
how we are to do this. It highlights the goal, the objective. Let me read these two passages one more time. I intentionally omitted the way that both of them end. Let me read them again. 1 Timothy 2, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, be prepared in season, in and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage. How are we to do this? With great patience and careful instruction. 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But how do we do this? Do this with gentleness and respect. Now let me share one more passage of scripture that I think perhaps more than any other in the entire Bible helps encapsulate this message. So if you have James chapter 3 open, take a look at verse 14. James chapter 3 verse 14 says this, do not boast and be false to the truth. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, now what is he saying? We could uh, see that word boast there. That ultimately means do not speak the truth in an arrogant and prideful way. Another translation that you could give is do not speak the truth and be false to the truth. Doesn't that sound like an oxymoron? What is James saying? He's saying that it doesn't just matter what we say, the words that come out of our mouth, but it also matters how we say anything at all. So there's a principle here that James wants us to understand when it comes to communicating our faith or communicating anything at all. I put it this way in your note sheet, two principles on apologetics. The first one goes like this. If I say the right thing the wrong way, I'm dead wrong. If I say the right thing, the words that are coming out of my mouth are completely true, but if I say it the wrong way, using the wrong methods, then I am dead wrong. How you say what you say matters. And James, he goes on to tell us what happens if we say the right things the wrong way. Verse 15 says this, such quote-unquote wisdom, saying the right thing the wrong way, such wisdom does not come from above, but it's three things, earthly, unspiritual or natural, and demonic. That's what he says, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Let's look at this first one. You don't have in mind the things of the new creation, the things of God. You have in mind the things of this earth. Not only that, unspiritual, you don't have in mind the things of the new kingdom, of our spiritual lives that are rooted in Jesus Christ, but in the spirit of this dark age. And not only that, that third one, they're demonic. You are not advancing the kingdom of God, but you are helping live into the principalities of darkness. That's what James says. So let me give you a bit of a roadmap here. Four things that are absolutely critical when it comes to us seeking to communicate the truth, especially within the realm of apologetics. The first two, I think, are really obvious and we're all going to agree with. But the second two are foundational as well. Now here's the first two. If I'm a Christian, my faith will be revealed by what I do and what I say. We all agree with that, right? What you say needs to communicate truth. But not only that, here's three and four, but also how I say it and why I say it at all. How I say it and why I say it. Now, I don't want you to miss this, so Here's the principle that I want to lay out to you, and I want to read this so that I get it right. When we say the right thing, 
the wrong way, using the wrong methods. We are taking the truth of the gospel and the name of Jesus Christ, and here's what we're doing. We're dragging it through the mud. Ultimately, it's a breach of the third commandment. We're misusing the name of Jesus. That's what we're doing when we take the truth and we use the wrong methods. And so that's why it's so important to James, the half-brother of Jesus, to say it's not just important what you say, but how you say it and the motivations for why you say anything at all. And so we have to be ultimately very, very clear on why we say what we say. So then you might say, okay, Justin, uh, what is the goal of apologetics? What is our motivation when we seek to give a defense of the faith? And I think the best answer to that question is what Jesus says just before his ascension in Matthew chapter 28, when he says, go and make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he gives this promise. Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He is going to mobilize and to equip you to speak the truth of the gospel in a way that wins hearts. So here is the second motivator when it comes to apologetics that I put in your note sheet. We are called to speak the truth in love and to win people, not arguments. Our objective is to win people, not arguments, not to win debates, not to, you know, destroy the other side. You see this all the time on Facebook, right? You know, your favorite political candidate absolutely owns and destroys your least favorite, right? You see that all the time. Is our objective to win or is our objective to persuade? And I think we need to be really clear on what our motivation is. And I want, I want to keep these two principles in front of you as we move forward on each of these topics. Because we have a whole slew of topics that we're going to be looking at over the no- next couple of weeks, and some of them are going to be really sticky. And I want to encourage you, if you don't mind, to please be praying for me and the preaching team as we work through this series. I'm going to be preaching on the topic of hell next week. And my hope and my prayer is that we can learn and grow how to address these issues, not only in what to say, but in how to say it, so that we can also grow as apologists as well. So here's how I want to frame this series. Um, There's a, a truth that I think many Christians have a really hard time swallowing, and it is this. The culture war in Canada is over. It's been over for probably around 30 years. But I think one of the things that has been really difficult for us is all we want to do is to win back the culture war, to impose our values on society once again. But I think that's long gone, long, long gone. But here's what makes this really simple for us. At the end of the day now, we know that our motivation is absolutely clear. It is to persuade our unchurched and unbelieving family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors who don't yet know the name of Jesus, and that is our ultimate focus. That is our objective. That is our goal. So here's what I want you to do right now. Think about someone, perhaps they're on your pi-squared list, someone who's far from God, and imagine for a moment that you're at a coffee shop with them, and they sit down with you, and this is your coffee, right? And you're, you're sitting down, and they say to you, I have an issue with exclusivity, 
I have a problem with, why Christ, with how Christianity is just so exclusive. Could you explain that to me? What would you do in that moment? How would you respond, knowing that your objective isn't just to win the debate, but to persuade them? And so today, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at, in one word, the topic of exclusivity. I started off with with that objection with Johnny and with Sally, but let me reframe it this way. Here's what I put down uh, in my notes. How can you claim that Christianity is the only way to God? Isn't that intolerant or worse, divisive and harmful? And right off the bat, I want to acknowledge something that I think we all know to be true. It is this. Deeply held convictions are deeply powerful. Are they not? Deeply held convictions are deeply powerful. Generally speaking, if you think that you are on the side of truth, then if you're not careful, it might lead to a a smug sense of superiority and pride over and against other people who don't lay claim to the same truth that you have. And if our motivation when we're talking to our unchurched and unbelieving friends and they bring up the topic of exclusivity, if the motivation is persuasion, then what we need to do is we need to think a little bit about why they have that question in the first place. We need to understand their point of view. And maybe, just maybe, they have an argument. Maybe, just maybe, they have been able to see with their own eyes what religion has done. That oftentimes, people who have deeply held convictions are radically opposed to people who don't share those same convictions. And huge lines begin to emerge in the sand. I mean, look no further, if you're looking for an example of this, than the uh, religious elites of the day when Jesus walked the earth and how frustrated they were with Jesus. One of the things that I find uh, so fascinating about Jesus in his three-year ministry is the most common objection that the religious leaders imposed upon Jesus. Of all the things that they could have said, the one that is most commonly shared as an objection against the ministry of Jesus is this. This man welcomes sinners. Think about that for a moment. What's underneath that accusation? What's underneath it is a religious class system in which on the one side you have the morally superior upper class, and on the other side you have the immoral lower class. And what is Jesus doing? He's constantly eating and sitting with sinners. And he's absolutely destroying the class system that they hold dear to. And that's ultimately what we see throughout all of Scripture, the four Gospels, is that it creates these conditions in the, in the heart of these religious leaders to dehumanize the irreligious. And so why is this important? Because I want us to see the very reasons why some of our unbelieving friends and neighbors are trying to to get rid of the exclusivity of religion. So to do that, I want to give you perhaps uh, two strategies that our culture tries to use to remove the exclusivity of religion and why they do it in the first place. Here's the first strategy. I think a lot of folks who consider themselves irreligious 
and they're frustrated and fed up with religion, the first thing they try to do is to amalgamate religion. Another word for that is throw them all in the blender. Uh, The first strategy is is kind of uh, the argument, can't we all just get along, right? Can't we all just coexist? Perhaps the best analogy that we can use uh, is a very well-known parable of the three blind men and the elephant. Have you heard this one before? We have three blind men who go up to an elephant and they try to understand how it looks. And the first blind man, he goes up to a leg and he says, it's like the trunk of a tree. And the second blind man, he goes up to the tail and he says, no, it's like a snake. And the third blind man, he goes up to the ear and he says, no, it's a fan. And the three blind men begin to argue and grapple with one another and say, you're wrong, I'm right. And they start to fight with one another. But then there's a fourth man who can see. And he says to each of the three of them, he says, in a sense, all of you are right. But in another sense, all of you are wrong as well. And so, in our culture today, what we want to do is we want to say, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just coexist? Can't we all just, you know, recognize that what the most important thing is in the world is our search of truth? And if you have found a truth that's good for you, you don't have to impose it upon everyone else. Hey, you found the tail, right? You got a little piece of truth, and that's good enough for you. And if it's, if it's motivating for your life, then don't worry about it. And so the illustration concludes, religions are all the same. All religions see part of the spiritual truth. No one can see the whole thing. And no one should insist that they have kind of the corner, the market, on truth, and no one else does. How can you be so exclusive? In a single image, um, I think I, I can present this image to you, coexist. Have you seen those bumper stickers on cars? Have you seen those before? They're all over the place, right? And it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds compassionate. It sounds nice. But there's also an issue when it comes to the coexist bumper stickers. And let me just try and share this with you with one of my favorite authors. Uh, he has a quote. It's, it's kind of heady, but I'll try to explain it after I give you the quote. Here's what Leslie Newbegin writes. He says, There is an appearance of humility in the statement that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But it is, in fact, an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to the knowledge which is available to fallible human beings. We have to ask... And this is the critical point. What is the vantage ground from which you can claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims which the different scriptures make? Okay, that's, that's a mouthful. What is he saying? What he's saying is there's absolutely no way for you to know that all religions are equal unless you claim to have a knowledge that you say no one else has. Let me say that one more time. There's no way for you to know that all religions are equal unless you claim to the kind of knowledge that you say that no one else actually has. I was really grappling with, uh, with how to say this this week, and then it just hit me. I'm going to use the parable of the three blind men. It would be the, the equivalent of saying something like this. You're all just a bunch of blind men touching parts of the elephant, but only I can truly see. So one of you, you know, if you're Christianity, you're touching the tail. If 
If you're Buddhism, you're touching the fan, you're touching the ear, right? If you're Hinduism, you're touching the leg. But only I can see, of all these religions, you all got bits and pieces, but only I have the eyes to see. All y'all are right and all y'all are wrong. You have to claim a, a knowledge, a theological and theoretical and philosophical knowledge that is superior to all others. So in that sense, if you lay that claim, you are being more exclusive than all the other religions combined. And that's where the argument ultimately breaks down. Now let me give you a, a second strategy, and I think this one is equally common. I think ultimately for the last 30 years, the strategy has been to try to amalgamate the religions. That's why you've seen all these coexist signs all over the place. But I think that strategy is beginning to die down, and in its place, we have a new one, and it is this. Privatize religion. The new motivating force is to privatize all religions, confine religion to the private realm. The concept here isn't, is, I'm not against religion. You know, if you want to have your religion and you want to have yours, that's perfectly fine, but keep it in your house for no one else to see. Don't bring it to bear upon society. Don't bring it to bear within your political realm or, or societal issues or anywhere else. Leave that for home. And again, you might look at this and say, yeah, that, that sounds right. It sounds kind. It, it doesn't claim any moral or theological superiority. But once again, it begins to break down. Let me just try to uh, bring all of us on the same page for a moment. I know that right now, with all the people who are watching at home, I can very easily say that there is at least one person who is skeptical to Christianity. And I know that there is at least one person who's watching who is a self-professed atheist. And there's at least one person who is watching who would say, I'm a Christian, but I have doubts. There's at least one person who's watching who says, I am a Christian and I have such strong convictions that nothing could ever cause me to waver. See, we have a wide spectrum of people who are watching today. But let me try to bring all of us on exactly the same page. There's something that every single person who's watching today has in common. And it's this, deeply held convictions. Deeply held faith convictions. You believe that there's certain ways in which the world works best, and not only that, you want other people within society to believe and to act the way that you believe and act. Let me just give you an example of this to, to show you that you don't have to be religious in a traditional sense or go to church in order to have religion, in order to have deeply held faith, deeply held convictions. Can we assume for a moment that there is uh, someone who doesn't have any faith in God or gods whatsoever, they're a, a self-professed atheist, and they have deeply held convictions on serious moral issues? Can we believe that? And there might be some, uh, some atheists who say, I have very strong beliefs and stances with regard to views on immigration, on the environment, on human rights issues, on LGBTQ issues, on our treatment for the poor, on concepts with regard to murder and how we ought to deal with that, 
on the use and abuse of opioid drugs in our province. The list can go on. And then can we also believe that there's another person out there right here in BC who is also a self-professed atheist but has equally opposite views on all of those topics. It's not only plausible, it actually is occurring. And so all that is to say, you don't have to have quote-unquote religious convictions in order to have deeply held faith beliefs. Here's one way that you can think about this for a moment. If you can't prove your faith in a lab, your convictions in a lab, then it's nothing more than a faith assumption. And you want to bring that to bear upon society in the same way that religious people might want to as well. So here's how I wanted to put it. Any person, religious or not, who is an activist, meaning you don't just believe this for yourself in your own house. You want it to be the truth outside of your house. You want society to function this way. So any person, religious or not, who is an activist of any kind is both religious and exclusive by virtue of your faith, by virtue of your deeply held convictions. There's a gentleman by the name of Michael Perry. He's a professor and a scholar at Wake Forest University. And he put it this way. I thought this was helpful. To say religious reasoning must be kept out of the public square because it's faith-based is itself a faith-based statement, which is incredibly controversial and therefore, on its own terms, ought to be thrown out. So, so here's, here's the point. We can't just say, religious people, you have exclusive beliefs, but I don't. No, we all have exclusive beliefs. Unless you say, you can honestly say to yourself, I have no deeply held convictions, none whatsoever that I would want to impose upon society, that I would want my neighbor to invest in as well. We know that every single person, you know, you might say, I have deeply held beliefs with regard to concern for the poor, or economic trends, or human rights issues, or with regard to women's rights or causes for the unborn. All of these are faith-based assumptions. And there has to be a foundation upon which you say, the reason I believe this is because of this. See, all of us, when you really think about it, are exclusive. But in my mind, I think there's an even more significant question that we all want the answer to, and it is this. What set of exclusive beliefs produce the most peace-loving, reconciling, and inclusive behavior? I mean, whether you're a Christian or an agnostic or an atheist or a follower of a different religion, don't you want to know the answer to that question? And what I would like to propose to you today, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, is that the Bible has an answer to that question. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, starting at verse 7. Here's what it says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, to your friends, since God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I want to share with you what the gospel of Jesus Christ does to every single person who steps over that line to follow Jesus, we begin to adopt a new principle for our life. The way that I put this in your note sheet is that the beautiful reality of the inclusivity of Christianity is this. Salvation is sacrificially given, not individually earned. So here's what happens. God comes into the world. God voluntarily suffers. God sacrificially pours himself up like a drink offering for people who don't love him. People who aren't good, people who aren't compassionate, people who aren't moral, and people who aren't loving to one another. That's what the gospel says. See, this is what makes Christianity more inclusive than any other religion in the world. This is the good news for Kevin and for Kelsey and for Kaysen, the good news for Ben and for Ashley, the good news for you and for me, is that before we had done anything at all, even little baby Kaysen, even before he has done anything at all, God has already placed his seal upon him because our salvation is start to finish the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what humbles us. That's what motivates us. The Bible tells us this. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans. And in that sense, there is no room in Christianity for a smug sense of superiority or pride. There's no room for it. No room for self-righteous, self-righteousness. No room for a, a religious class system. You are saved not because you're good, not because you're morally upright, not because you are imparting truth better than other people in the world. Ultimately, you are saved because Jesus Christ came from heaven down to earth. He took the cross, bore its shame. He put all of it upon himself so that you and I could be set free. Jesus Christ lived the life you and I should have lived, and he died the death you and I should have died. So that every single time God the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus, not the imperfection of Justin. Broken and sinful. I think of Martin Luther, the reformer. He says, oh, the worm, the wretch that I am. See, there's something that happens to Christians when they step over that line to follow Jesus. They are humbled to the core. Let me say something that that might bear some offense to you. For those of us who have been Christians for a long, long time, we know it to be true. But it still might feel offensive, and it's this. When you become a Christian, you have to be willing to assume that you have unchurched and unbelieving friends or neighbors who are followers of different religions who are better than you. More moral, more compassionate, more benevolent, more upright, kinder, nicer, all of those things. That's not just a a theoretical truth. It's absolutely true that there are plenty of people who are not Christians who are morally superior to you and to me. But don't you see, here's what the gospel does. The gospel 
humbles us to the core, where we have to recognize that it's not the work of Justin, it's the work of Jesus. And when we come to know that full well, when we understand it not just in our heads but our hearts, we are totally, totally humbled. See, that's what happens to Christians. That's why we can't have a smug sense of superiority. That's why this this quote-unquote exclusivity doesn't occur or ought not occur for the humbled Christian. Now, I recognize that there may be many professed Christians who haven't modeled this well. And you might even have examples of that, or you might even be looking in the mirror and say, that's me. But this is what the gospel does. The more we know Jesus, the more we understand the truth of the gospel, the more humble we become. I want to share a story with you from Luke chapter 7, verse 39. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Four big books, about three-fourths through your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Find Luke 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 39. It's the story of a sinful woman who enters into Simon Peter's house. By all accounts, everyone knows that she's a sinner. As the story goes, she's a prostitute, very well known in that community. And she comes into the house, and she begins to weep. And she washes Jesus' feet with her tears. And she dries his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees have an accusation against Jesus. They say this, When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, they said to themselves, If this man was a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. There it is again. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other just 50 Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured out perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And a little bit later, upon hearing this story, and upon receiving the rebuke from Jesus, the religious elites plot to kill Jesus. Because everything he says and everything he does causes this moral system that they have created to crumble. So here's what I want to propose to you. If you take moralistic religion and you put it at the center of your heart, here's what's going to happen you are going to develop a very smug sense of superiority and pride over and against secularists 
and quote-unquote immoral types. However, if you take secularism and you put that into your heart, then you too will have superiority and pride over and against religious people and people who think that they're morally upright and righteous in comparison to you. However, if you put the gospel at the center of your life and you are humbled on account of what it has done for you, then it will change your perspective of everyone. You will be so humble to the core that you will love the very people who don't believe what you believe. Because once again, the motif in Scripture is persuasion, not warfare. And you'll be so humbled by the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, you will be so motivated to outdo one another in love that you will cause for care and concern for the very people who don't yet know Jesus. That is why Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world, because it is the only one that doesn't put you in a position of moral superiority, of all the things that you have to do. It is a recognition on the front end that you can't do anything to save yourself, that it is start to finish the work of Jesus. Let me read 1 John 4 one more time to you, and then we'll close. He starts off in verse 7 saying, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he outlines the gospel for us. And then in verse 11, he says this, Dear friends, since God has so loved us, we also ought to love one 